you might be considering and, and thinking for the fact that the Christadelphians seem to be so infatuated with the nation of Israel. Uh, that's all they seem to talk about. Um, well, the Christadelphians uh, place a lot of emphasis on the nation of Israel. We have firm believers that the nation itself is uh, holds the very key to the future of not just the world, but also to each one of us. And so uh, our lecture tonight uh, discusses that very topic and explores that a little further. Uh, in fact, we have got a really interesting topic tonight. We're looking particularly at the threats that surround the nation of Israel uh, and looking into the future, what we can expect to see from this point going forward. Just a, um, before we start um, getting into the detail of those threats, I thought I'd just start by just putting up a couple of stats about Israel itself, just to get a bit of a picture uh, about the nation and what we know about the nation and to get a bit of a handle on that, first of all. Uh, well, well, first of all, they're only a, a small nation, eight and a half million people, approximately. They've grown significantly in the last uh, 10 or 15 years, but they still make up about 0.1% of the world's population. So significantly small or tiny body of people. The land area is about 21,000 kilometres, um, which, if you put it in terms that we might understand, it goes from about Port Augusta all the way down to Victor Harbour and about from the coast about to Kapunda in, in width. All right, So not a very large parcel of land. In fact, if you were to look actually where the land fits, um, I've got a picture up there of um, what we could call uh, the Anna Creek Station up in South Australia, and we can see that the, um, the nation of Israel actually fits inside that station. So really only a little parcel of land. But what I've put up there is three really amazing stats. They're ranked eighth as the most powerful nation in the world. This body of 8.5 million people ranked eighth in the, in the world in terms of the most powerful nations. We know they've got a nuclear bomb, uh, but uh, they build themselves up and, and provide a lot of the sophisticated weaponry around the world. They're ranked consistently in the top 20 most wealthy nations in the world. That's staggering, isn't it? For 8.5 million, ranked in the top 20 of the most wealthy nations. And even though we're talking about threats, even though we're talking about worries and stresses for this nation, yet they appear in a ranking of the, from safest to dangerous, they rank number 29 as a nation for, uh, for, in terms of its safety. So in the top, say, 20, 21% of the world. So three amazing statistics which describe for us the nation of Israel, um, which, are, which are quite staggering considering the land they occupy and also the number of people that live in that, uh, in that, in that land. So they are a history, though, that actually has been born out of violence and war. Um, the nation of Israel, as we, uh, as we probably are aware, um, was commenced really in 1948 as a nation, Probably you could describe 1947 as, the, as, as a critical point when they were uh, first agreed to be a nation. And it was largely born out of the, of the, of the feelings of um, needing to make up, like a moral requirement of the nations around, needing to provide a homeland for the Jews after the Holocaust of, uh, of Nazi Germany. There was about, um, uh, going by stats, about 40,000 ghettos and, and camps littered around Europe at the time. Uh, and, of course, um, we know uh, and have seen all the images of the Holocaust. I, th I don't think there's a, there's a documentary or film released uh, once, a, once a month, basically, which goes into that period of very dark history. Uh, but the Jews were, were born out of that particular period of time um, and uh, through these, these concentration camps. And at about 1948, we see the nation 
uh, being born. In fact, that was the headline from, from, uh, from May, I think May the 15th from a memory, uh, 1948. Homeland was established, particularly under the hand of the, uh, of the British, uh, who had a very strong um, uh, mandate in that, uh, in that area to, to um, provide a state for Israel. But this war and violence has not ceased since 1948, right up until, look, today, there were even some bombs were coming in from, from the region down at Gaza, which we'll look at in a moment. So all the, this last 70 years that they've been a nation, there's hardly been a week, a month gone past where we haven't seen some really serious violence or war or, or, or a bomb of some force exploding in this tiny parcel of land from Port Augusta down to Victor Harbour. Uh, and I, I, it staggers me to think that, that uh, we could be sitting in this hall and a, a, a siren could go off at any time and we jump under our chairs or we find a spot down below in a bunker and that's what it's like to live in Israel, uh, in the, particularly the southwestern parts of Israel, uh, and also at times in Tel Aviv, uh, one of the big cities there. The Arabs attempted to drive the, the Jewish people um, into the sea on a number of occasions. And it's a very, very well-known wars. The 1967 Six-Day War, uh, 1973 Yom Kippur War, uh, and from 1982 right up until present day, and I've got 2006 on there, particularly because that was the... Uh, the first and the second intifadas where the, the, the Palestinian people rose up and tried to um, get rid of the Jews and have done some various things to try and get rid of them. But in reality, that 2006 could be written as 2019 because it's ongoing. It hasn't stopped. It's still there. Uh, and in Israel it remains right now in a state of war alertness and animosity. It hasn't changed. And we're only there in December last year. You wander around the city of Jerusalem and it's full of soldiers. You feel safe there. In fact, probably you know, 29th in the world, it says. You feel safe. But there are soldiers everywhere, constantly walking around, guarding and, uh, and keeping an eye on, on the place. So these threats, what are they? Well, we talk about them as being surrounded by threats, and it could not be more at everywhere that nation of Israel is. All around them, surround them completely, are this, this, uh, these terrible threats that they're facing. You could argue that some of it's, uh, you know, they're doing the way they've, they've treated the Palestinian people, and I'd probably agree with that. But at the same time, there was an opportunity for them to be to get living together harmoniously. And of course, that didn't happen, and the, and the Palestinians, backed up by the Arab nations, tried to get rid of them. But particularly down in the, the southern, uh, southwest region, down the bottom here of Israel, um, we have there the, um, the, uh, the various uh, political factions um, of the, uh, the Palestinian people, uh, Hamas, and on the right-hand side, over on the West Bank, near Jerusalem, we have Fatah. And both of those are two groups of people uh, that are, uh, are sworn to annihilating the nation of Israel and to restoring Jerusalem as their, as their capital. So this is what we could describe as the daily barrage. It doesn't matter whether you're, you know, you're sitting in your, in your office down at the southwest town or you're sitting in Tel Aviv. At any stage, a siren will go off as a rocket comes in. Israel has developed all sorts of sophisticated weaponry to try and combat that. But uh, in, in, uh, very often, some of those rockets get through and do some significant damage. But it's not just those two regions. It's also up in the north, up in this area of Lebanon, right at the top here. And we have this group described as Hezbollah. They are a, they are a militia group that actually is sworn to um, destroy the nation of Israel. Uh, in fact, I've put this little image down here, but that could be there, an eight-year-old child. They are, they are dedicated right through their education system of training up their young people to understand and believe the threat of the nation of Israel and the need to annihilate them. 
They're ably supported by, um, by, the, by the Iranians from the right-hand side. In fact, the Iranian head general, Major General Hussein Salami, has said these words, and it hasn't. This is words from October 2019, and this is said on a regular basis. It's almost like they update their weaponry just to get rid of Israel. But this is his words. He's announced that uh, destroying arch-rival Israel has become an achievable goal thanks to the technological advances. This sinister regime must be wiped off the map. Uh, and you'll see that statement wiped off the map pretty regularly from this, from this chap here, who's the head of the Iranian armed forces. He's quite happy to, um, to make those kind of statements and, uh, and to talk about wiping Israel off the map, because that's really his end game. That's his goal. That's what he's, that's what he's there to try and do. But not only have we got these, uh, these nations here, we've also got a significant war going on in Syria up here. Uh, and the nation of Russia has got a really close involvement in Syria. Um, and in, in some ways, it's, it's, it's a puppet regime in Syria. Uh, it's supported by the Iranians, but particularly by the Russians, who have come down from the north to look after this nation of Syria, protect its, uh, protect its, um, uh, its president, and to keep him in place, Bashar Assad, uh, to keep him in place and to keep him... Uh, being able to continue as the um, as the president because it so, it suits the nations around to have him in place, but you know only last week, the week before that, and the week before that, bombs were lobbed over from Syria. Highly likely they were Iranian or Russian bombs coming over into Israel, and Israel counterattacks with with wiping some of missiles out. This this is not something that we're used to. We, we we sit in our homes, we sit in our hall, we can do whatever we choose. To have these kind of threats facing you all the time is something that we've, we're not used to, but it is something that Israelis face on a daily basis. And they need to counteract that by getting their own weaponry and building their own, their own uh, armed forces. But again, these threats aren't just in their immediate vicinity, they're worldwide. Anti-Semitism has been something that has dogged the world for time memorial. Everybody hates the Jews, and we're going to explore the reasons behind that and unpack that a little bit tonight. But anti-Semitism is on the rise. You could, have been, uh, you could have been excused for thinking that this white race supremacy is something that only belongs back under the Hitler regime. But its rise is being seen all over the world. And it doesn't matter which European party, they now are faced with a, a 10, a 15, or a 20% part of their, of their, of their, of their politics in their country uh, a number of seats that sit at the European Parliament are these white races, uh, sorry, white racist groups uh, who look for racial supremacy. Uh, and we see that anti-Semitism is on the rise. And I've just put up there a picture of Jeremy Corbyn, who's the, who's the head of the, the Labor Party, vying off for elections in, uh, in Britain in the, in, on the 12th of December. And only this week, the rabbi came out and said that Jeremy Corbyn is leading the most anti-Semitic party in the history of Britain. And you could be excused for thinking that they're supposed to be friends. And they are. Britain's described as their friend. America's described as their friend. But particularly this man here, heading into election time, Jeremy Corbyn, could be the leader of Britain. We're not sure. We'll have to wait until the 12th of December. But leading perhaps the most anti-Semitic party in the history of Britain. So really serious threats, aren't they? They're not just regional. They're not right, right next, next door. They're worldwide. And the Jews face this anti-Semitism on a regular basis, consistently feeling the pressure. And the images of uh, swastikas actually spray-painted over gravestones is something that even in South Australia we're fully aware of. 30% rise this year so far 
in the, in the number of very serious anti-Semitic activities or atrocities in Australia. And we see that even our own cemetery, these, um, these parts of Jewish cemeteries that are, are spray-painted or the gravestones are kicked in. And we think, why? What's, what's caused this? What, why is this anti-Semitism here? What's the, what's the underlying premise? Why would people do this to another race of people? And so we say to ourselves, well, what's the backstory to this threat? Why would someone do this? And, and really, in any conflict, there's always a history, isn't there? And so we need to go back in our Bibles, all the way back, 4,000 years, actually, to see the backstory of what's actually gone here. Uh, with, the, with the nation of Israel to see the threats that they're facing. So, as I said, the story begins about 4,000 years ago. Uh, an incredible man by the name of Abraham. God actually uh, came to Abraham and, and gave him a, a commission to come out of uh, the area that he was living in and to come out to a region in the area of Canaan, in the area of Israel today, uh, and actually to begin a, uh, the building up of a nation that God wanted to make his own. That's really the underlying premise of, of, of what went on all the way back then. Abraham actually did exactly what God wanted. He went out and he left and he left his hometown and took his, uh, his wife and uh, broader family uh, and travelled out there. He obeyed God implicitly is the words we could use. And as a result of that, God decided to give him some promises and a, a blessing. And he said to him, as a result of that great act of faith, some words in Genesis chapter 12, and I've got that on the screen there, Genesis 12, verse 1 to 3, and also chapter 13 and verse 15. He said to Abraham, because of this, this great act of faith that you've done, you've followed me out, you've done this implicitly, um, you've gone to a place, by and large, that you hadn't even seen before in a faithful way. Believe God. He says, I'm going to make of you a great nation. He says, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make your name great, Abraham. You're going to be a blessing and I'm going to bless them that bless you, Abraham, and I'm going to curse him that curseth you. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. And further on, when Abraham was in the land and he could look around and have a look around him, God said to him, look, look all around you, north, south, east and west. He says, because all the land which you can see, Abraham, all this land of Israel that you can see around you, I'm going to give it to you. And I'm going to give it to your seed. Now, that word seed there in the Bible is an expression of, of family, of house, of lineage. All right. So to your children and to your seed, I'm going to give it to you forever. Okay. So just remember those words. I'm going to give it to you forever. Really critical words. So these amazing words of promise that God gave to Abraham were that I'm going to make up out of you, Abraham, a great nation. Because you believed in me. All right. You've come out of this land that I've said you can have. Um, I'm going to make of you a great nation. But not only that, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and make your name great and you're going to be this blessing. All right? And people are going to, if, if someone goes and blesses you, I'll bless them. If someone treats you in a bad way or curses you, I'll curse them. All right? And that's God's promise to Abraham. So he's given him essentially, we could summarize that as by saying, he's given him protection for his family and he's given him an inheritance of land. But there was a little bit more to this, and I just want you to open your Bibles up to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22 is, is a final act of Abraham um, towards the very end of his life, which was also an incredible uh, test of Abraham's faith. 
um, to see if he would absolutely believe in God and implicitly obey um, uh, uh, obey God. God actually asked Abraham in, in Genesis chapter 22 to take his actual son, his only son Isaac, through whom this nation was going to be born, to take him and go and offer him on a sacrifice. That's a pretty tall order, isn't it? And to take him up and bind him up and actually put him on a sacrifice and, and kill him with a knife. Quite a shocking thing to do. So Abraham obeys God, believing in his mind that if this child is going to be through this nation is going to come, this great nation that God's promised me, then God's going to have to intervene or do something. And so off he did and he went and he took that son and he went to offer him up. And just before he was about to kill him, an angel intervenes and said to Abraham, I absolutely know, Abraham, I'm absolutely assured that you have complete trust and obedience in me. And he says in verse 12 of this chapter, Genesis chapter 22, he says, lay not your hand upon the lad, neither do anything unto him, for now I know that thou fearest God, seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And as a result, God says to Abraham, because of this act of faith, this is like, this is the ultimate test of faith, that you would do this. You would, you would kill your son for me. Because you've done that, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, like never before. And he says in verse 16, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because you've done this thing, and you've not withheld your son, your only son, Abraham, that in blessing I'm going to bless thee, and in multiplying I'm going to multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in thy seed shall all families or all nations of the earth be blessed because you evade my voice. Now, what an amazing promise that is to Abraham. He says, you've got one son, Abraham, it's Isaac. But from Isaac is going to come a multitude. How many? As many as the stars of heaven. As many as the sand on the sea that you can see, Abraham. That's the number of children you're going to have. And I want you to lock away, lock away the words of verse 18. We're going to come back to that at the end of our lecture. And in thy seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed because you obeyed my voice. Because you had complete faith in me, Abraham, and obeyed my voice, everybody's going to be blessed because of you. I want you to lock that statement away. We're going to keep that, package it up, leave it for a little bit later. But what I wanted you to see most of all was that God is blessing Abraham, he's protecting his people, and he's going to make sure that they flourish. Okay? So we could argue then from that point that we can see the reason and the backstory why the nation of Israel still exists today. Even though they're under some incredible threat, we can see why they still exist today. Because God has promised, and he said back in verse 16, by myself have I sworn. So by God's very existence has he guaranteed the survival of the nation of Israel. Right? By myself have I sworn, you will, Abraham, have children. And they won't just be one or two, just an Isaac or, or a couple more. You'll have a multitude of them. All right. So Israel was being preserved. So we could argue then from that point that the reason the nation of Israel is still there is because they are God's guarantee that he will fulfill that promise. In fact, we could use a Bible word and say God's witness to the rest of the world that he is guaranteeing that to be the case, that the nation of Israel will be preserved because of that promise that he's given. And so we see down through time that God has kept that promise for over 4,000 years since this particular time. And so we see this little nation of Israel preserved, still there. Now, even though they've been spread around the nations, the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, still exist. 
And they've survived invasion. They've survived the Babylonians. They've survived the, the Persians, the Greeks. They've survived the Roman invasion. And they've uh, even survived the persecution uh, right down through the last 2,000 years and particularly the Holocaust. They're still there. Absolutely incredible stats to see that the children of Israel are still alive today. Interestingly, though, the Bible points out very clearly that it's not anything the Jews have done. You could say, well, aren't they special? Aren't they God's people? Yes, they are. But God points out to them very clearly that he wants them to behave like Abraham. If you're going to be my children, like Abraham, I expect you to act like him. And the Bible quotes, which we're going to look at in a moment, show very clearly that they have been punished because they have not followed Abraham. They haven't been like him. Even though they are his children, they've behaved like they expect to be treated like him. And God says, no, no, no. I've blessed Abraham because of his behaviour, because of his faith, his obedience in me. But because of your disobedience to me, I've punished you. And so we have seen this cycle of punishment of the children of Israel down through time. Even though they've been preserved and God keeps them there, he still tries to correct them and, and, and move them forward and corral them through the way he treats them and brings them back to him. I want you to see that, first of all, by looking at a quotation in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 9. Deuteronomy chapter 9. The background to this particular um, uh, quotation is that this is just prior to the children of Israel uh, going into the, the, the promised land under the hand of Moses. It's a little further on in history. They're a much larger nation. In fact, you could almost say they're the size of you know, sand on the seashore and stars in heaven. There's, there's, there's millions of, of the children of Israel by this point. And they're crossing over the River Jordan to go in to start inhabiting this land. Now, Moses, their leader, is a very old man. And he says to them, look, I've got some words of advice that I'd like to leave with you. Some words which I want you to remember and keep in mind. And he, he actually writes this book of Deuteronomy about a month prior to, to, um, uh, to, to him dying and them going into the land. And he says some really amazing words to them in, in Deuteronomy chapter 9 and, and starting from verse 4, actually. He says, speak not thou in thine own heart after that the Lord thy God hath cast them out from before thee. And what he's talking about there is, he says, you're going into this land. There's going to be a stack of people that live in the land and you're going to try and get rid of them, get them out of the land. He's saying, don't say in your heart, ah, God's doing this because I'm righteous. For the Lord hath brought me in to possess this land. But for the wickedness of the nations around, the Lord drives them out. So he gets rid of them, but he wants to bring me, a righteous Jew, into the land. That makes sense. And Abraham, sorry, Moses is saying here, that's not the case. He says, God's not doing it for that reason. He says in verse 5, not for your righteousness or for the unrighteousness of your heart dost thou go in to possess this land. But for the wickedness of these nations that the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee. And that, and these are some really critical words, and that he may perform the words which he spake unto your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, understand therefore that the Lord thy God gives you this, uh, sorry, giveth thee not this good land to possess it for your righteousness, for you're a stiff-necked people. Wow, what an indictment that is. And what he's saying to them is, this is not because you're some great nation of, of, of wonderful individuals that are following Abraham and doing exactly what he wants, that I'm giving you the blessings of Abraham. 
It's not, that's not the reason. He says, the wicked nations that are there in Canaan, I'm putting you into that land to get rid of them. But be aware that it's all part of my promise that I made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the fathers of this nation. That's why I'm doing this. And let's have a look at another quote, Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43 and verse 9 through to 12. This is another quotation which talks about them being a witness to all the nations around. Uh, that the very reason that they exist, the very reason that they exist is a testament to those promises that God made. Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 9, he says, Let all the nations be gathered together and let all the people be assembled. assembled. Who among them can declare this and show us former things? Let them bring forth their witnesses that they may be justified or, or let them hear and say it's a truth. But he says to the Jews, You are my witnesses, said the Lord. And my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no saviour. I have declared and have saved. I have showed when there was no strange God among you. Therefore ye are my witnesses, said the Lord, that I am God. The context of this, Isaiah's writing to a nation that was still stiff-necked. A nation that had said, well, actually, God, we're not that interested in you. We're interested in the gods around us. And Isaiah says, you know what? I'm about to punish you again, this time with the Babylonians coming down. He says, but be aware, I will preserve you. And even though you don't deserve it, I'm still going to keep you. I'm still going to look after you because you are my witnesses that I have given some amazing promises to Abraham and will preserve you. And another quotation which I just, I've just i got on the screen here is this one from Jeremiah 30. This is the words that Jeremiah writes about the nation of Israel, about to be punished again, but God's saying to them, I'm going to preserve you and bring you back ultimately into the land. And this is a quotation which I want you to think about because it just says that God is going to protect them right down through history. And I reckon this is, this is an amazing quote. He says, I will save you from afar, from afar and thy seed, and remember that's that same word from, the, from Abraham, and thy seed from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return and shall be in rest and be quiet, and none shall make him afraid. For I am with you, saith the Lord, to save thee. Though I make a full end of all the nations that I have scattered you, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, the pogroms throughout Europe, the Holocaust, Nazi Germany, I've made an end of all them. Where are they as powerful nations now? They don't exist. Though I make a full end of all the nations whither I've scattered you, uh, scattered thee, yet will I not make a full end of thee. But I will correct thee in measure because you're still an unrighteous nation. You still haven't followed Abraham and showed the same faith as Abraham. And I won't leave you altogether unpunished because you're behaving the same as them. But be aware that I will correct you, nation of Israel, but I will never destroy you. I will preserve you forever because you are witnesses to that very amazing promise that was given to Abraham. What a great quote. Beautiful supporting quote for, for, for the children of Israel to remember that they are going to be, per, uh, going to be uh, preserved by God forever. It doesn't matter about the difficulties and trials they go through. I'm not arguing that it's, it's an easy thing to go through, but what I'm saying is that for them, it's confidence that they can uh, 
they can understand that God will always be there for them. This quotation in, um, in Romans chapter 11 just talks about the blindness of the nation of Israel. There is a reason why God is going to correct them in measure. There's a reason why he's going to bring them uh, from being a stiff-necked people to become a people that are his children, like Abraham. He says there in Romans chapter 11, the context of this is that Gentiles were thinking that they were more important than the Jews um, and the Gentiles were people that had been brought into to the hope or the belief and that they were more important than the Jews because the Jews had rejected it. But the Apostle Paul says, for I wouldn't, brethren, that ye be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye be wise in your own conceit. He says that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sin. And what we've been told here in Romans chapter 11 is that even though Israel has been scattered through all this period, they've been blind. They haven't been able to recognise their deliverer. What we've been told here is that deliverer will come and will turn away ungodliness from them. He will take away their sins and they will acknowledge their God in the way that he wanted them to acknowledge, being like Abraham, their father. So this nation is powerful. As we're seeing with our stats, they're powerful. They're safe, 29th in the world. They're wealthy. They don't need God at the moment, do they? We're not seeing this wholesale revolution to see the children of Israel or the Jews return to their God. In fact, you could say that they are largely not interested in God. They don't view God as someone important in their life, this nation. Secular place. And they definitely do not acknowledge a deliverer or someone to save them. They don't think they need saving. They're very self-secure. And Romans, the Apostle Paul in Romans describes them as blind. But he argues that that blindness will pass. And God has a plan for the, for the nation. God has a plan for the Jewish people, a long-term plan. And it's linked to the threats that they face around them. Just come with me to, uh, to Ezekiel chapter 37 for a moment. Ezekiel 37 is, is one of those uh, 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 prophecies um, that we see about the nation of Israel. In fact, it's, a, it's a, an astonishing prophecy um, if you were looking to find any proof that God will resurrect the nation and uh, the Jews and bring them into a nation in 1948. Uh, the, the backstory to this is that they, uh, 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 God bought uh, Ezekiel out into a large field and he said to him, have a look around. And all that Ezekiel could see was these, was these skeletons laying dry on the ground in the hot sun. It's like an army of skeletons on the ground. And he said to Ezekiel, start watching. And slowly, these sinews started to grow. Some muscles, some, some parts of the body started to form together. And it grew into an army and it stood up. And Ezekiel was, was shocked. And he says in verse 11, then he said unto me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. 
Behold, they say, our bones are dried, our hope is lost, we're cut off in our parts, we're a bunch of skeletons laying on the ground. And prophesy, verse 12, and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, of my people, I will open up your graves, and I will cause you to come out of the graves, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened up your graves, O my people, and brought you up out of the graves. And those words there have absolutely been fulfilled in 1948 when they were established as a nation again. 2,000 years, they'd been like these dry bones laying out in the open. The hot sun of, of persecution and trial. And yet God was able to resurrect them up again. Why? Because to God, they were never dead. They are my witnesses, he says. And for 4,000 years, he's preserved them. And even though they might have appeared to be dead, they weren't a full nation. God brings them back together in 1948. They're a nation once again. But I just want you to note these words in verse 21 and 22. He says, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whither they be gone, and will gather them on every side and bring them into their own land. And I'm going to make them one nation in the land, upon the mountains of Israel. I'm not going to make them some other in some other location. They will come back to the very spot that Abraham stood. And God said, look, north, south, east and west, every part of this land you will see. God has brought them straight back to that point and made them a nation once again. And he says, not only that, one king shall be king to them all. And they shall no more be two nations, neither they shall be divided into two kingdoms any more at all. And if I was to take you to Luke chapter 1 and verse 32, the words, the famous words at the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. His name shall be the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will sit on the throne of his father David. The king mentioned here in Ezekiel chapter 37 is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, who the Jews will eventually, and we're going to look at a quotation to prove that in a moment, eventually recognise that he is their king and that he is their Messiah and he is the one to lead them to safety, even though they don't recognise him or God in their lives whatsoever because of their security, their riches and their prosperity. The concern for Israel, though, and getting back to our lecture title as we come close to the end of our night, these threats to Israel are only going to intensify. And that's a pretty scary thing because we could see how serious those threats were. They surround the whole nation in every way. In fact, they're all over the world, these threats, and yet the threats are only going to intensify. There's a quotation in Ezekiel chapter 38, and we're on this section here in, in Ezekiel, talking about these different sorts of prophecy that relate to Israel. But Ezekiel 38 is all about a day in which the nations of the earth will turn in a coordinated group led by the Russians to come down to annihilate the children of Israel. Now, we know that's not going to happen. We absolutely are confident of that now that we've looked at our Bible and explored that promise to Abraham. We're confident that won't happen. But what a scary time for the nation of Israel to facing this incredible threat now as the nations of the world gather, to go, gather together against them. We read Zechariah chapter 12, and I just want you to come over there for a moment. 
Zechariah chapter 12, our, our reading for tonight, and just look at a couple of verses which describe this particular time for the children of Israel. Just while we're there, I want you just to notice a, a little expression which appears in this chapter uh, and in any chapter which, which is describing this end time period uh, when all these threats are uh, come to fruition, if you like. And the expression is found in, in verse 3. He says, and in that day, all right, in that day. So if you're like, it's Zechariah. He's prophesying something from 2,000 years ago and he's projecting forward, all right? So he's saying to the people around him, in that day, this is what's going to happen, all right? It's like us saying, you know, in Christmas 2025, like we're projecting our mind forward to a particular period of time. That's exactly what Zechariah is doing to people here. In that day. Now, that expression appears in almost every verse. So verse 4, in that day. Verse 6, in that day. Verse 8, in that day. Verse 9, and it shall come to pass in that day. Verse 11, in that day. And right through to verse uh, chapter 13, in that day, and, and going through chapter 13 and 14. So it's an expression that's being used to describe what's going to happen when all these threats here that we're talking about come to fruition or, or come to, if you like, a head. And when this great confederacy comes down to annihilate or attempt to annihilate the children of Israel. And what does he say there? Um, he talks about the fact in verse 3 and 4 that, that God is going to intervene. He is going to destroy the nations that rise up against the children of Israel. And particularly down in verse 8 and 9, just read those verses. And in that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, just as he has done for 4,000 years. He's going to defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And he that's feeble among them, as that day shall be as David, and the house of David shall be as God, as the angel of the Lord before them. And particularly verse 9, and it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that are come against Jerusalem. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. And shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Now they are amazing words. And what we're being told here in these particular verses, verse 9 particularly, that God is actually going to destroy this group of nations that comes down and seeks to destroy Israel, seeks to annihilate Israel off the, off the planet, if you like, to come and take a spoil, is the words of uh, Ezekiel chapter 38, to come down and to destroy them. And God says, no, that won't happen. And he will intervene. And we can see that over the page in a moment. But he's going to destroy the nations that seek to come to Jerusalem. And in doing so, the great relief of the children of Israel will be finally seen when they acknowledge God and acknowledge their own, if you like, their own disobedience of him and finally recognise that they were the ones that crucified the Lord Jesus Christ many years ago and that he is the one that's going to be their king. It says there that uh, they will look upon me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. And as a result of that, we see in chapter 13, verse 1, as a result of that acknowledgement that they have, they have totally rejected God and crucified his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one that was supposed to be their king, it says in verse chapter 13, in verse 1, 
In that day, there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. And God will restore this nation back to him again. No longer a stiff-necked people, a people that God is looking after because of his promises, because of the wickedness of the nations, but nothing because of what the Jews have done. And God will restore this nation to become his people because of their faithfulness, because of their belief in him, because of their acceptance of both him as their God and the Lord Jesus Christ as their king to rule over them. It says there in verse, um, over the page in chapter 14 and verse 9, the Lord shall be king over all the earth. And in that day, there shall be one Lord and his name one. And also over in verse 16, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which come against Jerusalem shall even go up year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. And what we've been told here is not only will the Jews become more important to the world, they will lead the world to show them that this is the right way to go. We need to go up and worship the God of Israel. We need to go and worship the Lord Jesus Christ, who's at Jerusalem. And they will bring people with them up to Jerusalem. Have a look at this quotation from Zechariah chapter 8. These are the words of Zechariah a few pages back, which describe this exact thing. It says, Yea, many people and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem. What a contrast. Haven't we been seeing, aren't we seeing anti-Semitism? Aren't we seeing the, the, the hatred of the Jews worldwide for centuries after centuries? And yet what we're seeing here is people, strong nations. This is America. This is Germany. This is Russia. Strong nations coming up to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, in those days, very similar language, isn't it, to what we've been seeing. In those days, it shall come to pass that ten men shall take hold out of all the languages of the nations even shall take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew, saying, we will go with you because we have heard that God is with you. Isn't that an amazing change, isn't it, that we're going to see with the nation of Israel? Now no longer the stiff-necked people come around now to accepting God and God is blessing them just like he blessed Abraham. As he said, your seed shall be of the stars of heaven, the sand upon the seashore, and they will inherit this land forever. And that's the exact fulfilment of those words. Well, without question, as we come towards the end of our lecture, you might be asking yourself, well, good and well. The nation of Israel saved. Fantastic. The Christadelphians are infatuated with the nation of Israel. But what about us? Well, we're not Jews, are we, necessarily? There may be one or two scattered amongst us, but we're not the actual children of Abraham, are we? And I can remember saying to you at the start of our lecture, take that little package of information. And what was it about? It was talking about the fact that in Abraham, all of us can be blessed. And I want to draw your attention to words of Galatians chapter 3. And he writes these words. He says, he says, For ye are all the children of God, by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptised into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither bond nor free. There's neither male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ's, 
then you are Abraham's children and your heirs according to those promises. And that's a stunning quotation. That's put us in the picture. So not only are the Jews are going to receive some amazing promises, yet go through some incredible hardship as well and be saved by God, but each one of us as well can also receive those same promises. So when he says, in you, Abraham, because of your faith, because you believe me, because you did something that was extraordinary, I'm going to bless all families of the earth. And so our encouragement to you tonight is to explore that promise a little further. What you're being asked to do in that promise is actually to believe in God the same way as Abraham did. All right? And have, a, have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we're also being tasked with being baptised. Two things together. Faith, believing in God, that he can save us. And believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, demonstrated through our actions of being baptised. But the promise is that if we do that, we too can be the children of Abraham. So that promise just isn't just the Jews. That's extended to everyone in this room. That's an amazing promise. To inherit the land forever and to be preserved by God forever, time memorial. What a terrific promise that is for each one of us. So let's wrap our night up. I've got six points there which really summarise our, our lecture tonight. Israel is facing some escalating threats to their existence. No question. We explored that already. We've seen that it's all around them geographically, but it's worldwide. And even their friends are starting to, to move away from them. We've seen from a number of quotations in the Bible that God says that the children of Israel are my witness. You're my witness that I promised things to Abraham. And the very reason that you're still alive attests to the very things that I said to Abraham. So you're my witnesses. He says that the very reason you're a nation again is proof that I'm still looking after you. And the nation of Israel, restored in 1948, is proof that God's still working through them once again. They're going to face some further threats, and those threats are going to be terrible. And those threats are going to be from a whole host of nations which will seek to annihilate Israel. But God will intervene. Israel is going to become the head of the nations. Phenomenal thing. Gone from being this persecuted group of people to becoming the head of the nations once again. And the beautiful point that's relating to each one of us here tonight is that Israel's hope is actually our hope as well. And our encouragement to you is that you explore that promise to Abraham further. While we might not be Jews, we can be Jews. We can be spiritual Jews, if you like. We can be the children of Abraham if we share in that same faith that he demonstrated to God. Thank you. Thank you.